Uh, good morning, everybody. Uh, my name is Esha, and I've been going to ANC for about a year and a half. Um, as you know, this summer we've been talking about different isms, and today we're talking about racism. Racism is not an easy or light topic, and ANC tackles and speaks boldly about a lot of issues, as you've seen this summer. Race is not one we talk a lot about here, um, but I'm hopeful that you know, we're going to talk about it today, and hopefully it's the beginning of a lot more conversations. So I'm going to have everyone on the panel introduce themselves in a second. I want to make sure that we're all thinking about the same definitions of race and racism. I think it's important for us to have a shared vocabulary when we use those words. So when we use the term race, we're talking about a social construct. Race is not based on biology. It's not based on genetics. It's a human-made thing. Quoting Robin DiAngelo, race is an evolving social idea that was created to legitimize racial inequality. When we use the term racism or racist, we're not talking about personal prejudice or intentional dislike of other groups because of their race. That definition, talking about it as a personal dislike or a personal prejudice, sets up a false binary of good people and bad people. It gives us this idea that people who are racist because they have intentional dislike are bad. I don't have that intentional dislike, therefore I'm good and not racist, and therefore I'm not part of the problem. That's not a helpful construct for us today or you know, for any time that we talk about racism. So when we use the term racism, if we're, we're not talking about it as intentional dislike or prejudice, we're thinking about it as a system of advantage based on race. Racism is a system. It occurs when a racial group's prejudice is backed by legal authority and institutional control, meaning that that prejudice has power and it's institutionalized and affects all of our lives. So because racism is a system and not a personal dislike, we're all a part of it. We all inherited the system and we all are either disadvantaged by it or have privilege because of it. You don't have to be intentionally racist to benefit from this system or to be an expression of it. The other challenge for today is what you hear might bring up a lot of emotions within you. You might feel a lot of guilt or shame. You might feel angry. You might feel very defensive. That's probably a normal reaction, but the challenge is to decenter yourself and to decenter those feelings. So when you feel that start to rise within you, the challenge is to put that to the side and to avoid those feelings for the next 30 minutes. You know, after this, evaluate those feelings and why you felt that way, but for the next 30 minutes, you're going to try to put those to the side so that you can be more open. You're gonna hear things today that are gonna challenge you and I, a spirit of openness is going to help you learn from those experiences um, and truly benefit from what everyone has to share. So with all of that in mind, uh, I'm going to have everyone on the panel introduce themselves real quick and answer this question about when they first realized or became aware of their race and when you first realized or became aware of racism. Um, and I'll just do a quick introduction. Like I said, my name's Esha. I grew up in Houston. Uh, I've lived in Austin for about two years and have been going to ANC for about a year and a half. Uh, I moved here for work. I am an employment discrimination and civil rights lawyer, so I primarily represent people in the workplace who've experienced racial discrimination or have been sexually harassed or other forms of discrimination as well. 
Uh, I'm Tim. Um, my family and I moved to Austin last summer um, after my wife was offered a dream job here in Austin. Um, I, we started coming to ANC um, shortly after, I think around October, November is when we started coming regularly. Um, I'm a cognitive neuroscientist at the Dell Medical School at UT and do a lot of research about brains and people. Um, I <coughs> am a first generation Chinese. My, uh, I was born to parents who immigrated here from Taiwan to attend graduate school and they decided to stay in the States, start a family and um, have kids. Um, so I think I first became aware of my racial differences um, at a pretty young age um, in elementary school. My mom would pack me Chinese food for lunch and you know, my, I would be made fun of, I'd be teased about how disgusting it looked, how it smelled bad. Um, and so you know, I, I told my mom, I said, can you just pack me white food? Just give me a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. <laughs> Now as an adult, that sounds boring, but you know, as a kid, I was, I was very embarrassed by that. Um, and you know, I think that it's kind of sounds superficial to, um, but I think it wasn't until maybe high school when I started to feel more deeper internal, um, you know, kind of an identity crisis. I didn't really fit in with the Asian crowd. I didn't really fit in in the Caucasian crowd. I, you know, when I would go back to see my extended family in Taiwan, I was treated as an outsider because I was the American-born. So I, I've always just kind of felt like I didn't fit in. Um, and, you know, for kind of, for a while, I tried to navigate between the two and just kind of code switch between the two different cultures. And, um, you know, at some point, for reasons that are, you know, I, I still really can't articulate yet, I just decided to kind of um, really resent and grow bitter against um, my culture and my heritage. and decided, you know, if I'm going to make it in this society, I, I should just be as white as I can, essentially. Um, and, you know, it wasn't until my later adult years, and I think maybe when I was when I became, uh, got married and then had kids, where I started to kind of reconcile and embrace my cultural heritage. And now I'm really proud of my Asian uh, American identity. I want to pass that along to my kids. Um, I speak strictly Mandarin Chinese to them. and. Now I've become the parent that is packing Chinese food for the lunches. Uh, good, good afternoon. Oh, it's still morning. Good morning. My name is Jennifer. Um, I've been a part of ANC for eight years, and um, I currently oversee a dual enrollment program at the University of Texas at Austin that is really focused on increasing the diversity of students that are matriculating into four-year institutions and, and being successful and really focused on that upward mobility. Um, I first experienced race when I was in fifth grade. Um, my sister, who was two years older than me, came home um, after school. One of her teachers brought her home because she had been beaten up that day by a white girl um, for walking like a white girl. Um, and that was the first time that I really understood that there was this difference in a race or in a class in itself. Um, it, was the, it wasn't an, an experience until racism until I got a little bit older um, in high school. Um, my dad was a state legislator and so he lived in Austin every other year. And in my junior year, I was tired of living in Corpus. And so I begged him to let me come up to, with him during that legislative session and he did. And he asked his friends, you know, what high school should I put her in? What's the best high school? And so he, listened to them, he put me in a high school here in Austin, and um, I went to that high school. 
And in the first couple of weeks, two, to, two weeks to a month, no one talked to me. Um, and finally, a black girl friended me. And um, the next day, I was cornered uh, by a bunch of Latino girls who said, how dare you friend a black person? Um, that you're supposed to stay within your race. Um, and so kind of was a little scared of that moment and just stuck with my one black friend. Um, a few months down, um, I started dating the white football player, or a white football player, I should say. And um, shortly after that, I was then cornered by a bunch of white girls and how dare I take one of their white boys. So I spent that year with my one white boyfriend and one my one black friend. Um, and needless to say, I moved back to Corpus and finished out my senior year um, and graduated from there. And so that's my story. Hello, everyone. Good morning. Um, my name is Elir. I have been here at, coming to ANC for about four years now. Um, I am a creative director at a tech company here in Austin. Um, I really love my job, and um, my whole purpose of kind of going into that industry um, is to create more opportunities for lower income, single moms, uh, just make it more accessible to learn and to uh, learn online classes. So that's my overall heart for doing what I do. Um, my first, um, my first interaction, kind of like knowing that I was a little different. There's actually two times um, I realized the first time was I grew up in a very, uh, and I grew up in north part of Houston, and it was a small community where everything was in Spanish. The teachers all spoke Spanish. I was taught in Spanish. Our talent shows weren't talent shows. They were like flamingo dancers, and it was so exciting. And then I, when I learned what other schools do for talent sh shows, I was just like, what's going on? You know, <laughs> what, is, what is all of this? Um, and and I didn't realize that until like fourth grade where our teacher was like, oh, English, everything else kind of functions in English. And it was very, I remember being very like astonished by it and wondered why, why? Spanish is great. Um, and we moved into the suburbs kind of on West Houston. Um, and that's kind of where I really felt out of place. I uh, was in a room that was mainly predominantly white uh, students, and I remember my teacher, uh, I was learning how to write and simple sentence construction, and I think that she was definitely condescending, looking back at it now, condescending on how, why didn't I understand basic concepts. Uh, sometimes things don't translate the exact same way, and I've realized I say certain things in Spanish that make sense, but then in English it doesn't, but in that little loss of culture and like transla translation makes me feel really stupid sometimes. So that was a big one. And the other one was is a very vivid memory. Um, I love my mom. She's everything. She's a very strong Mexican woman with a lot of wisdom. Um, and I remember she worked really hard and was working for 10 years uh, in a dentist office and all that. And she got a job at an orthodontist office. It was a great job. And the doctor, which was a white doctor, walks in, just kind of looks at her for a little bit and asks her, can you even read? Do you even know how to use these computers? This is a very high job. Um, and I think that was very, uh, played a big, it kind of affected me in a way of this uh, uh, figure that I look up to that I know is so smart 
and wise to raise as a single mom so many kids. I, th I, I think in that age, I knew something was up. I, I didn't know what were, what were the words, what it was called, or what was around me. But it affected me knowing that there was a greater force outside of my parents who aff affect them and who will is affecting me. So I think those two things were big um, moments where that whole idea there's something different going on here. Good morning, my name is Adrian. Um, I have been coming to AMC for about two and a half years at this point. I've been in Austin for about 10. Um, I am from small town Louisiana. Uh, you have to pass through to get gas somewhere so you can stop by Alexandria. Uh, um, I was blessed with um, being raised by the most amazing man that is a white man. So while I'm not biracial, I definitely grew up in a biracial household. I have two younger siblings, and so that would probably be when I first became aware of my race. Um, I was not allowed to spend the night at my dad's mom's house. Um, I had to refer to her like Miss This, uh, Mr. That for his dad. Um, there were people that didn't speak to us, and a lot of it had to do with me and my mom. So that's, I mean, my parents got married when I was three, so that's from a very young age, feeling that way. So it's been something that you just grow up with and you kind of learn to uh, deal with. So that's me. <laughs> oh, I am a nursing supervisor in the busiest emergency room in Central Texas, so I get to meet all kinds of people every day. <laughs> the 11 o'clock is so fancy, nobody applauded at the 930. <laughs> that's true. Um, to my... To my shame, I um, discovered race. I think I f discovered racism in grad school. Um, I felt different growing up in Mexico. I knew I wasn't Mexican. Tried so hard. Um, <laughs> found out quickly that I was neither that, and when I would come home, I wasn't this either. And so I was lost in the middle. It's it's amazing to hear sort of the universal experience of being stuck in between things. I felt that, but what I learned to do early on was transact on that in my favor. This is what our race does, right? Because being white is actually a race. Did you know that? Yeah, it's a race. We don't think of it. We think this is normal. Everybody else is, has a race. No, our race is known for not acknowledging our race. Uh, and so I learned to transact on that. I think my, my uh, power over the young ladies peaked uh, in probably middle school in Mexico. Because <laughs> I had topsiders before anybody down where I lived did. And so the, I just learned to rely on being the American as being the one who had access to all things. And to my shame, I didn't learn to deconstruct that until much later. I was sitting in a grad school class in seminary when I first heard my dear professor and good friend say, uh, you're complicit in the system if you don't, even if you didn't build it, you're complicit. And I remember feeling a sense of righteous indignation, saying, I am not a hateful person. And he said, see me after class. And he began to see me after class multiple times until I realized, oh my God, I've inherited a system that was built for me and I was built to not see it. I was trained to not notice it. And so, to my shame, I became aware of racism in my late 30s. Um, you can clap. <laughs> um, so I, my parents immigrated from India and I was raised in a community in Houston that was primarily Indian immigrants and their children. 
So everyone I interacted with before I went to pre-K or kindergarten was Indian. Um, the first time I remember stepping into a classroom where everyone was primarily white, I was probably four or five, and I remember feeling very jarred by it and realizing immediately that I was different. That's probably the first time I became aware of my race. Um, didn't realize racism until I was older. I think I was taught an immigrant mindset where you work hard and you assimilate and you don't think about it. Um, a colorblind mindset, and I ignored the systems even as they were affecting me and as, affecting my, as they were affecting my family. Um, but I ignored it for a long time until I think I was in college and started to really grapple with it. So my next question for everyone is, what's it like to be a person of color in church, either based on past experiences or based you know, on your experience here at ANC? Um, so for me, honestly, I uh, don't have a ton of experience being a person of, you know, being a minority in a church because I grew up going to a, a Chinese-speaking church with other kids who were dragged by their parents who also immigrated to the States. So, um, you know, I, I think I'm still kind of figuring out what it means to be, um, you know, a minority in the church space. Um, one thing that I think I've observed is that I tend to have a sliver of skepticism um, and kind of feeling like I would be the token uh, Asian or, you know, the token minority. I think particularly Asian because it, it, it seems like Asians are kind of the, the silent or the unspoken minority, um, at least in my experience. Um, and, and actually, to be honest, when I was asked by Jason to be part of this, I did have that, you know, slight skepticism. Oh, I'm, you know, I think I'm the only, one of the only Asians here at ANC. So, but, you know, so that, I've observed that kind of at the back of my mind always, just feeling like this um, suspicion of, oh, are, are people really genuine in, in when they want, you know, me to be involved in something at church? And um, I think the question, though, really concerns more, I'm, we're more concerned about, my wife and I were concerned about our kids and how, you know, what it means for our kids to be um, biracial in a predominantly white church. Um, and we tried going to Chinese churches in the past, whether it's here in Austin or, or elsewhere, and we just, we didn't really connect with the, the church there ourselves. You know, it was great for our kids because they were around other um, Chinese Americans, um, but we just didn't connect with the values, the theology, the teaching, and, um, and, and really, to be honest, we had to kind of sacrifice that for our kids um, be, when we came to ANC because, you know, there isn't a lot of racial diversity, if I'm, I'm frank, and there's, you know, not a lot of other Asians, and, but we connected so well with the community here, with the values, the teachings, and, and the worship, and so, you know, that, that's kind of, yeah, that's just kind of my experience. So, um, as I mentioned earlier, we've been coming here for eight years, my husband and my kids and I, and um, I will say that we still feel like guests in this church. Um, I think when you look around, you don't see many people like us. Um, and so that's always been a challenge for us. Um, more recently, we have a teenager um, who has recently experienced his own race and has, um, we feel probably has experienced some racism in his school setting and has really asked us to be able to seek out a different church because he doesn't feel like he belongs here. Um, and so that's really been difficult for us because my husband and I feel very connected to this church. Um, we love the theology. We believe in the mission of ANC and the work that the leaders are doing. Um, and so recently in the last couple of months, we actually did set out and church hopped 
um, not necessarily for ourselves, but to give our son an opportunity to find a space where he feels comfortable and connected to God. Um, and it's been interesting because in the three churches we visited, two predominantly um, white churches, if you will, and one that did have a, a, a good number of population of Latinos, we didn't feel like we fit into any of them. Um, and so I noticed that we've really assimilated to, um, to just fit in. And um, so we've kind of agreed to allow him the space to find a church that he connects to so that he can be part of the youth group there um, while we still come to service here and um, that he join us for service so that we can still as a family engage in conversations around the message and what we're learning at ANC. Um, I'm going to share two experiences. One is at another church, and then at the end, my experience here at ANC. Um, my experience with church is complicated, just as like everyone else's. Um, the, whenever I was in high school, a large group of Presbyterian, um, older white couples came over to our side of the tracks and just kind of wanted to invest. And we, I grew in a great relationship with them. Um, but then they wanted us to go and share kind of more of their community. So they invited us to their church, which was a kind of, again, across the freeway. Um, and I remember, and I remember going, being excited to go to a new space. But as I entered in these, like, their doors, I, as a, as a kid and like as, I don't know, you can tell. And as a teenager, you can just see people's eyes and their facial expressions and you can read people. Um, and I remember walking in with my dad, mom, my brothers, all Mexican, and just feeling the eyes of, what are you doing here? Or, why are you here? Or, there's the space itself, the worship, there's a lot of things that don't fit with you, and you learn to assimilate. And that started the process for me for two things. One of them was my Latino-ness, is my weakness in this space. I need to start carving out these things about me that make me more Mexican. They're not gonna bring me the success that I want, and I won't be accepted in this space, and I'm not, won't be, I need to be a palatable Mexican man. Um, and I think I learned to dislike and, and grew bitter towards what my parents were offering, what my friends, we're offering that we're Mexican, my cousins, and it kind of put me in this in-between where I am told if I study hard enough, go to school, get the job, do the thing, speak the language, then I will be included. Yet, just as you shared, I still feel as like a guest in many spaces. And you learn to perform, it's a performance. We've all learned how to maneuver and hold back certain things from telling you to make sure you're okay and you're not offended. Um, the second part is I identify as a cisgendered, pronouns are he, him, and I identify as a gay man, um, which kind of put a whole nother layer to that um, with, with church. And I think that's, that's my experience. Uh, with ANC, um, I think I feel very loved here. I think in the side of including the LGBT community um, I appreciate that. I think there's another side of me. It not, it's not just gay, but it's also my Mexican heritage, my mom, and which 
which I honestly, I have to give up here in some way. There's no thing that I can share. Um, so with that, I think I'm still, I don't want to, but I've learned it so well to hide behind masks because I'm gay and because I've been in these white spaces, it's really hard to take those off and not perform. So I have existed in white spaces and black spaces, both being completely different in challenges in different ways. I find that I have to compromise some part of myself in order to fit in in both places. So it makes me, leaves me feeling on the periphery no matter where I go. Um, here is so friendly and everyone's so nice, but to the guest part, I would definitely have to agree with. Um, because there's not, I don't see anything about me here. There's nothing, uh, to be honest, um, there's, there's nothing about me that's rooted here beyond the teachings and everyone being so friendly and really identifying with, um, I think, where we're trying to go with things. And it makes me very excited. Uh, I've never even been in a church that would even have this type of conversation. So this in itself is mind-blowing for me. Um, but I have to be honest that I don't feel rooted. So. Um, so I grew up in a majority white church, um, and we were definitely the only Indian family for a long time. I think my parents probably still are, are one of the few, um, but was in that same church from birth until I was 17, and I frequently got asked when I converted or when my parents converted, um, and it seems like kind of a benign question, but it, I was asked it often, um, and my white friends were never asked that, and it kind of felt like my spiritual maturity was being called out, that I wasn't as respected, um, and it, it reminded me over and over again that I was other. It also just, you know, it wasn't my cultural history. My parents were born in Christian homes, and so were their parents, and their grandparents were pastors, and my history was just different, but because of the way I looked, I was singled out and treated like an other very often. So, uh, last question is, where would you like to see us go from here? Um, for, for me, I think I would want to communicate, um, as an Asian American, I want to communicate the message that, you know, I feel like oftentimes at the collective level, you know, that, that Asians um, are kind of left out of the conversation of racism. Um, you know, at, when we're ever ha having, you know, in the media or um, in just kind of bigger settings of bigger conversations, Yet, despite that, you know, I feel at the individual level, I, it's very um, racism. I encounter that regularly. You know, I, I get a lot of, you know, what country were you born in? Or, or you know, I just, just subtle things also, like people talking slower as if I, they assume I don't speak the language. Um, so it is very real, yet I just feel like it's kind of not um, talked about as much um, here in, in the States. So, you know, I, I think... That's just one message that I want to communicate is that, you know, we're um, part, I, we would, I would like to be included in the conversation and I really appreciate Jason uh, inviting me to be part of this because it just acknowledges that I am also, um, you know, a victim or, or I have also been part of this systemic racism uh, that we're all experiencing. Um. So for me, it's a couple of things. Um, and so I didn't share this in the first service, but I will this time, and hopefully my husband won't kill me. Um, <laughs> but
But he recently shared a story with me that happened to him last week where um, he has an opportunity um, where he's working in a high-rise building in downtown Austin that caters to very affluent people that live there. And the general manager of this um, hotel, not hotel, condos lofts, um, he was engaging in a conversation with her and it was a, a white female. And they were talking and waiting for the elevator. And when the elevator came, the, um, the lady who oversees the cleaning services for this, um, these lofts was coming off the elevator and my husband quickly turned in conversation to her in Spanish. And um, he speaks beautiful, fluent Spanish and is first generation himself. And um, the general manager of the establishment turned to him and said, oh, I didn't know you spoke their language. Um, and as I was reflecting on it and thinking about it, I don't, I'm sure that person doesn't associate themselves as a racist or doesn't see themselves as prejudiced and probably didn't really understand what they said that was offensive. Um, and so I think it's just, we have to challenge ourselves that oftentimes we're, we assume because we're not like others that we are not um, engaging in that type of racism or prejudice. And so I just, I think we have to challenge ourselves because this is a system to say, what am I doing to contribute? And is there something that I can do slowly to start changing that, whether it's engaging in conversations with my friends that are minorities, whether it's um, really taking a step back and thinking about the things I say or do or the way that I engage with others. Um, but that's kind of where I'd like this to continue going. For me, I, th I think I have an ask. And that ask is listen. And don't have words don't feel like you need to say something. Um, here's an in inside scoop. Um, we have all learned through these spaces how to sit still, not say a word, to not be perceived as violent or as neg negative. So my ask is for you to do your personal work. And if you have those people around you that are also people of color, they've also learned to just not say things to you and be quiet. So just listen. Um, a lot of us, I can say, I can speak for myself, we have processed our race. I have processed me being brown. And now in, in the environment and in the time, white people are now realizing they're also a race. And the thing I, for that I would have to say is, you have to process that for yourself. That is, I have my own things, and I have process, and I've, since I was in fourth, third grade, I've been processing what it means to be this, and dealing with what that means with being Mexican. So that's my only ask. Listen, don't, while you're listening, don't, don't feel the need to have the right things to say back. So we were talking about, I was talking with them about this earlier, um, but I am someone who is very much aware of any stereotype that I will be cast in, whether it's the angry black girl or um, always late or just whatever. And I work so hard to overcompensate for that because I don't want to ever be put in a box. Um, and that's, that's just been life for me. But where I draw the line are those two little uh, black boys that are mine and um, 
it's important to me that they live in a space and in a world where they, um, they feel heard, where they feel valued. And for me, I feel like where we go from now is um, I would like to see more of diversity in leadership, honestly. They need to see themselves. It's not enough to be a member of a congregation because there are plenty of, of white churches that have black people in them. They need to see themselves. Um, and a lot of times with culture shifts, most people say that it should happen organically. We should do this fluidly. It shouldn't feel forced. But that doesn't exist. If we keep doing things the way they always happen, we're just going to go further and further and retreat further and further away from one another. So sometimes the inorganic thing has to happen so that the next generation can see more organic fruit from that. So that would be my biggest takeaway. What extraordinary people. I don't know whose idea it was to pull you together, but they're, it was brilliant. I think it was my wife's. <laughs> That's not a joke. I think it was actually my wife's idea. Um, these particular people. I want us to be the kind of people who can begin by processing the feelings that rise when things are centered off of us. Uh, I want us to then be the kind of people who can understand the system and how it was built, who built it, and how we can tear it down. Um, and I want, to be us, I want to be the kind of people who can solicit feedback on where the microaggressions come from us and accumulate. Um, didn't say this at the 9.30. I told you all the 11 pulls different things. But here's, here's what I want us to be the kind of people who can do. I want us to engage socially in ways that, are not, that we're not paralyzed because we're so afraid of making a mistake. We come, we come from long, continuous lines of racist people, y'all. It's not going to be a surprise when we continue to make this mistake. But I want us to be the kind of people who can solicit feedback and then not defend, not shift blame, not explain away, but understand how we can build something different together. We can build something different together that's not built on the assumptions that we fill in when we see people in situations. We just assume it's, it's a function of our brain, isn't it, Dr. Tim? It's our brain wants the shortest route, and so we fill in the gaps, and we think, oh, we know what this is. This is that and this is the other. I want us to be the kind of people who can solicit feedback and hold space for it. And it's going to feel terrifying because you're going to feel really bad. And it's not about you being bad. It's about you not shifting the center back to your processing and letting their story be the center for just a minute, for a hot freaking minute, y'all. It's not going to kill us. It's not going to kill us. And so I want to be the kind of church that builds the kind of culture that promotes the kind of space where that is the norm. And can we get there? It's going to take work. But that's what I, that's where I want us to go next. Yeah. I want to quote Dr. Beverly Tatum um, real quick. She says, because racism is so ingrained in the fabric of American institutions, it is easily self-perpetuating. All that is required to maintain it is business as usual. When people do not disrupt unfair systems of privilege, they are willingly or unwillingly on the moving sidewalk, receiving white privilege and inadvertently enabling racism. So you've heard a lot of people say, do the work, you have to do this work. What does that look like? We've compiled some resources that I think are good places to start. There are some books and podcasts, whatever works for you. There's a new project called White Homework that I think is going to be really interesting. Um, it's a curriculum someone's been working on. 
as you do this work, as you, and th these are going to be posted um, later, so everyone will be able to access them. But as you choose a resource, as you engage in these conversations, I want you to be aware of one, decentering those feelings of guilt and anger and whatever else is coming up within you um, so that you can really learn. Um, it's really important not to put your feelings about racism at the center and actually put the problems that racism, racism has caused at the center. Um, at the very top of this list, you're gonna see a book called White Fragility. It's by Robin DiAngelo. I think it's one of the most accessible books about race. Jason's holding up a copy of it. It is written by a white woman for a white audience, a primarily white progressive audience. I think that's a great place to start. Um, it's accessible in the sense that the content is hard, but it is a very readable book. Um, the other thing is you don't have to do this work alone, but you're not gonna make people of color do the work for you. You are not gonna go up to the people of color in your lives or anyone on this panel and apologize, <laughs> and you're not gonna project your feelings and emotions onto them, because it takes a lot to already share. Um, so if there are people of color in your lives who have initiated those conversations with you, you can do what Elliot said and listen. Um, but you, they're not gonna teach you, it's not their job to teach you, and it's not their job to share their trauma. It's your job to do the work. So that's what these resources are for. You don't have to do this work alone. You can do it with other people. You can do it with the white people, the lots of white people in this congregation. <laughs> you guys could get together and you can read these books or watch a movie and talk about them and start to do the work together in community. So um, where do we go from here? Not super sure, um, but I'm really hopeful. And I hope that this is just the first of many more frequent and honest and fruitful conversations about race and privilege. Um, and so I'm excited about what that'll look like. So with that, we're going to read this liturgy together, and let's all stand up and read it. It should be up on the screens. Yeah, we're all going to read it in unison. God, grant me the grace and strength to want the best for other people when I'm afraid it will come at my expense. God, grant me the grace and strength to see the best in other people when I'm afraid of what their best says about me. God, grant me the grace and strength to be part of the solution when I'm more interested in not being the problem. God, grant me the grace and strength to push through to the solution when the next objection is still waiting its turn. God, grant me the grace and strength to pursue justice, humility, and mercy without waiting for my prejudice to disappear. God, grant me the grace and strength to learn your hardest lesson, that it's worth dying to let others truly live. <laughs>